0: Our Father, it is a gift of yours to sing songs to you, to have music and melody carry up the expressions of our praise. We trust from hearts that delight in you, and therefore it is praise that is acceptable to you. We so delight to speak of your glory. We so delight to rehearse the wonders of salvation. We so delight to consider the majesty of your Son. How delightful these things are and how wonderful to think that our whole eternity and our whole future with you will be in the light of your presence to forever sing your praises and forever offer to you lives of holiness made holy in Christ and expressed in the glories of heaven forever and forever. Oh, how we long for that day. But we know that that day, what is for us joy, what is for us anticipation of such delight was accomplished for us through such suffering, such darkness, because that is the reality of our sin. But we thank you that you have removed it from us in the person of Christ. And our Lord, we marvel at your sacrifice as we go through these final hours of your death here in the gospel of Matthew. I do pray that as we go through Holy Spirit that you would glorify the Son in our hearts, that you would enable us to see afresh the wonders of our redemption and that we would be stirred up anew in our hearts to give praise, give praise to you. It is to that end that we pray and we ask you in this next hour to Exalt your name in our hearts when we pray in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, verses 47 through 56. Now, as we come to this uh, portion of Scripture, as we go through our what's turned out to be a long track through the Gospel of Matthew, but we are now coming here to the end, the final hours of the life of Christ... And in verses 47 through 56, which we introduced last week, we're now completing our look at the at the glory of God in Christ as he is laying down his life as a sacrifice, submitting to the Father in perfect obedience, not one sin, not one thought of sin, not one act of disobedience ever entered into the soul or the mind or the affections of our precious Lord, and that is all demonstrated here particularly in these most intense moments of the last hours of his life. And it is in his bitter suffering that we receive much instruction. It's where we receive much instruction, not only in our own response to suffering, which we'll consider this morning, but also the response again, and of course, of worship. Worship to the one who gave up so much for us. Let's read the passage together, verses 47 through 56 of Matthew 26. We'll recap briefly what we considered last week and then we'll look at it more closely. Beginning in verse 47 of Matthew chapter 26. Now while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? At that time Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. And then all the disciples left him and fled. Turn back, if you will, up to verse 47. Now, we introduced last week, when we came into this passage, this, this scene, this dramatic scene that records for us the betrayal of Judas, the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ by the one named Judas Iscariot, who, through all of history, his name is to our ears a name of infamous fame. In other words, it is a name of treachery. It is a name that stands for the very epitome of what is dark and despicable. It is a portrait of betrayal. And it was, in the life of Jesus, one of the most painful experiences that he had, no doubt, being betrayed by one who was so near to him. As a matter of fact, Matthew wants to emphasize that, as we noted, in the very description of Judas. In verse 47, he is Judas, one of the twelve, one of the twelve, one of the intimate ones, one of his companions. One of the ones that he, by his own sovereign choice, drew near to himself. One of the ones who witnessed the life of Christ, who heard the teaching of Christ, who was near to Christ 24 hours a day, 7 days a week for 3 years. He was with him. Judas, one of the 12, is the one who was now betraying him. An intimate companion. An intimate companion. In John 18 we noticed highlights this even at another level, saying that Judas knew exactly where to go and to find Jesus and the disciples because, in fact, he often met there with his disciples. And not only does that explain to us how he knew where to go, but it reminds us that this was a a place, no doubt, that Jesus had spent much time with his disciples, praying with them, teaching them, giving them rest, having fellowship with them. And so Judas knew that place, and so he comes, and he finds Jesus. And he comes not alone, but Matthew tells us that he came accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs. This crowd was made up of both Jews and Gentiles, chief priests, officers from the temple, Roman soldiers, all together coming and descending upon Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ, alone there with his 11 disciples in the garden. And the crowds, in a real sense then, represent, as we mentioned, this arrayed rejection against Christ. Jew and Gentile rejecting their God, their Creator, even their covenant-making God, the Jews particularly. This is a reminder then of John's own words that He came into this world and the world did not receive him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And so here they are, these crowds, Jews and Gentiles together, coming against Christ in the garden, led by Judas Iscariot. And as he is the one who is rejected by both Jew and Gentile, the world he created. He is also the one who in this rejection was accomplishing salvation for both the Jew and Gentile. Let me just remind you of Paul's words in Romans 3. It says this, he says, In verse 28, we maintain, or verse 29, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. And the big idea there is simply this that God is the God of both Jew and Gentile. He is the Savior of both Jew and Gentile by faith. And so here he is with both Jew and Gentile representing the world's rejection of him coming to take him away. They're coming in the cover of night which is both a picture of their cowardliness. As we mentioned, they were afraid of the people. They were afraid of the reactions of the crowds. They certainly didn't dare come during the day. They were too frightened of the crowds for that. And so they come under the cover of night. But even as we notice when we read in John chapter 13 that he makes mention to say that Judas went out and it was what? It was night. It was night. It was a picture as well of the darkness of the deed that was being portrayed. And no doubt, I think at least part of this as well is the fact that coming by night is a covering for their own conscience. In other words, they know that what they're doing is not just. They know that what... What they're coming against Jesus for is not worthy of the violence that which they're going to take him. And night is even some way to salve their conscience. And we mentioned this is how sin is so often committed at night. The drunk get drunk when? First Thessalonians 5. At night. When do people want to do their darkest deeds? At night. Under some kind of covering. Some way to salve their conscience against what they know is wicked. And so here they are at night. Coming against Jesus. And they knew as well, because it was night, that they were going to need some kind of sign. So they didn't want to take the wrong person. And so they had to have some way of identifying who Jesus was. And so Judas is the one then who supplied that sign. And he says in verse 48, Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. This is really, really again incredible. Now, they would have, again, wanted a sign because they wanted to get the right person. It was night. It would have been very easy to uh, grab the wrong one by just not being able to see clearly. So the idea of a sign is understandable at some level, but this is a sign chosen by Judas himself. And any sign could have been chosen, but this is one that displays intimate affection, companionship, closeness. An open relationship of love and care for one another. It is a sign designed by the instigation we noted really of Satan himself. What did we read earlier? That Satan had entered into the heart of Judas. He was now completely under the control of the evil one. It was by his own sin that that took place. Jesus had compromised long ago and opened himself up to that kind of influence but there was a decisive point that came which is uh, given to us in john 13 of when he ate the morsel and satan entered into him this is really the climax then of satan's own desire to cause the suffering of christ that goes all the way back to the garden you will bruise you on the hill, and you will bruise him on the head And so here all of these things are coming together in this kiss of Judas. This kiss of the traitor. And it was there that we left off last week. Let's look at this then. Continue. How did Jesus respond to this? How did Jesus then respond to this? How did he respond to this moment of incalculable deceit and betrayal? Well, there's two statements recorded for us that Jesus gave to Judas. Two statements. And I just want to make a note here, beloved. This is why we have multiple gospel accounts. They're each telling it and bringing out different aspects of the situation. Different parts of the scene that just one gospel writer would miss on his own. But when we have them all together, we get a full picture of everything that went on. And so here, one part of that picture is recorded for us in Matthew. And he simply says to him in verse 50... Friend, really a muted word for friend, but nonetheless a statement of gentleness. Friend, do what you have come for. No doubt their faces are very close together when they're saying this. Looking each other in the eyes, maybe even able to smell each other's breath. He had just kissed him, and as we noticed... It wasn't just a normal kiss. The language there was of an intensified kiss. In other words, it was probably multiple kisses or one that came with some kind of embrace, but it was an intense display of affection, And in that, Jesus looks into his eyes and he says, "Friend, do what you have come for." It's a statement that cuts through Judas's hypocrisy with piercing clarity, piercing clarity. And this should have also then cut through the conscience of Judas like a knife but it didn't it didn't luke records for us a second statement luke 22:48 and he says judas are you betraying the son of man with a kiss are you betraying the son of man with a kiss again the personal address here is is chilling it's chilling but at the same time it has a mark of tenderness and even a mark of compassion really toward judas Mark of compassion towards the one who is betraying him. It's difficult to say what kind of tone was in Jesus' voice. Was it that of hurt? Was it that of sorrow? The depth at the depth of Judas's sin. Now I want to note here. Then is it's no doubt both of those things: sorrowful because of the hurt of one so close betraying him, sadness at the depth of Judas's sin. But I want you to notice here this: that the only thing one being deceived here is Judas, the deceiver. The only one being deceived is Judas the deceiver. Jesus knows exactly what is going on. And that's part of the glory of the picture, as we mentioned, is that this is a willing submission of Christ to the plan of the Father. He knows exactly what is going on. He is willingly meeting his betrayer. It's perfect submission of Christ. And I would suggest to us as well, beloved, and we need to to think about this, That God sees through every one of our hypocrisies and every one of our lies, doesn't he? He sees through every one of them. If you live a life of deception, if you commit a deed of lying, the only person that's really being deceived is the one doing it. The only person here really being deceived is Judas himself. And the same with you, the same with me. And I would even ask, are there any here... Who have some kind of secret sin that you think that is being hidden from God himself. Is there some secret lust? Is there some planning of sin? Some harboring of secret desire in your heart that you're hiding and trying to keep out of the sight of God or others? It's a futile attempt. Just as Jesus knew exactly what was going on in the life of of Judas, he knows our own lives as well. He knows what you see. He knows what we think. And so it is here with Judas, and he calls him out on it. And again, even to the end, though, Jesus is showing a tenderness and a sadness at Judas's act. Again, he's hurt by the betrayal, but guess what? Jesus also knows in deep grief and sorrow for the soul of Judas what his end is going to be. He knows it's going to be destruction. He already mentioned it up in verse 24. It would have been good for him if that man had not been born. And not only is Judas or Jesus grieved at this future of Judas, but Jesus also knows that all judgment has been given to the Son. John chapter 5, 22. Jesus is going to be the one who for eternity executes that judgment. But here he's on the receiving end. Now that's all we have in the account of Matthew. But I want to take you back just quickly. Turn over to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. There's one other episode to consider here as we wrap up this first point. John chapter 18. Which is the suffering of Jesus. Now in John chapter 18 as I mentioned. Is supplemental to uh, the scene that we have abbreviated for us here in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew. And again, this is the glory of having these multiple witnesses, these multiple testimonies to these events. And so John unfolds for us some details that aren't there. Now, after receiving the kiss of Judas, and it is possible also that it happened before the kiss of Judas. Um, It's hard to be precise on that. But I think most likely it's after receiving the kiss of Judas, we have this account for us in John 18. He says this in verse 4. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered and said, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas, who also was betraying him, was standing with them. And so when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. And therefore he asked again, he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. So Jesus is gone now, having been identified or before, either way, but goes in light in the face of these crowds and he meets them head on and he asks them a question, whom do you seek? Now, why does he ask them this question? Why does he ask them that question? Well, probably several reasons could be given, but the one that's noted for us is in verse 9. Why did he do that? To fulfill the word which was spoke Of those whom you have given to me, I lost none. Even to the end, Jesus is demonstrating his faithful care for his disciples, his sheep. And really, it's a fulfillment of his promise. Don't turn there. In John chapter 10, he says, look. He says the the wicked shepherd, the one who is only... A shepherd in name flees in verse 13 because he is a hired hand and is not as concerned about the sheep. So when a wolf comes in verse 12, he sees the wolf coming. He leaves the sheep and he flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters. But Jesus is not like that wicked shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He's the perfect shepherd. Not only does he not flee, but he tells us that he is the one in verse 14. That knows his own and in verse 15 lays down his life for the sheep. That he lays down his life for them. He says in verse 18, no one has taken it away from me. I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. And he does so for those who were given to him as a faithful shepherd, as a faithful shepherd. And so here he is in the midst of this scene, in the midst of his submission, in the midst of what would look like his weakness, in the midst of his taking on such betrayal by Judas and this uh, violence of these crowds, is yet act, acting as sovereign Lord, acting as sovereign Lord. He spoke in these crowds who think that they are the ones with the power and the ones in control and they fall down. They fall down. Now, some say that it's because of the moral authority at which he spoke. Some say it was the power, the name itself. And then when he spoke it, they were taken aback by it and they, they fell down to the ground. Some say that it was because he emerged from the darkness and they were simply overwhelmed by his sudden presence. However, none of these is really sufficient. The leaders had heard the name before and wanted to stone him. And it's hard to believe his emergence from the shadows would have stunned them enough to fall down. And they had continually witnessed his moral authority and had not had the same reaction. What's going on here? It's best simply to see it as this. At the name of Jesus, at the very command of Jesus, the Spirit from the Father simply overwhelmed them. And they fell back. They were so impacted in that moment at the one who was standing before them, that they simply fell to the ground. They simply fell to the ground. It was a powerful, powerful moment. And really, I think it's probably not wrong to see here that God is giving some kind of foretaste into what's going to happen at the end of the age, Right? And Jesus is going to return, and he says what in Philippians 2, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And here they are, really against their own will in some sense, bowing their knee before the one who is giving up his life to them. But notice that they continue to arrest him. Isn't that striking? Isn't that striking? They fell to the ground and they continue to arrest him. But that's in fact what happened. And it's in fact the very, the very testimony that though they felt the power of the person of Christ, they did not fully understand. Paul says if they, the rulers of this age would have known that he was the Lord of glory, they would not have crucified him. So even though they, they felt something, it was not enough to convert their hearts... And beloved, this is not unlike us today and many today who would feel powerfully an impression upon, about the glory of Christ or be convicted at some moment about sin and be able to just continue on with the life unchanged. It happens all the time. He talks about some who receive the word with joy, but they just continue on. They just continue on. That's how it was throughout the ministry of Jesus. No doubt they were convicted and powerfully impacted with this person, but... They continued on, they continued on, and so it is here. We have an entire testimony of a generation of a nation who did that. We've looked at it before in Hebrews chapter 3, who for 40 years witnessed the power of God, and yet it was never united with faith in their God. They were disobedient, and that generation died in the wilderness. And so here he is, here he is standing before them, Even in this is a mercy. Even in this really also has a sense of a testimony. Like he's bearing witness to his glory even to the end. Even to the end these could have responded. And yet they didn't. They didn't. So we have the testimony of blazing light before such darkness. He is the light that shined in the darkness. But the darkness did not understand it. Did not overtake it. Did not comprehend it. It was totally foreign to what this darkness could grasp. The glory of God before them, and yet they cannot see it. And again, this happens all the time. The glory of God on the pages of Scripture. And some here, I would ask, you know, do you see the glory of God on the pages of Scripture? Do you see the glory of God in the Gospel? Do you see the glory of God as you read through the sacrifice of Christ and His wonder and majesty? If not, it's not so different from these who fell down before the majesty of Christ and got up and continued to arrest him. And so Matthew picks it up there in verse 50. And Jesus, and they at the end, they, and they came and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. And they seized him. So that, when was the betrayal of Christ and his suffering? Let's look at the next 51 through 54 and see the misunderstanding that attended this, even of his own disciples. And note this that wrong thinking leads to wrong actions. After they've done this this intense scene the crowds have now come up and they've laid hands on Jesus and then chaos ensues chaos ensues he says in verse 51 behold one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out a sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear a dramatic reaction and again, it introduces a moment of chaos to what was already a time of confusion to all of those who were present. Again, John informs us in Matthew or John 18 that it was actually Simon Peter who drew his sword and cut off the ear, and the servant's name was Malchus, and he was a slave of the high priest. And so here we have Simon Peter drawing his sword, standing near Jesus and swinging it and hitting the slave Of the high priest who was nearest to him. Now you might ask the question why didn't he take his weapon and aim for Judas? Why didn't he aim for Judas? Judas was the one betraying him. And I think it's most likely because he was just confused. I mean, this was a shock to them. Every part about it was confusion and chaos and darkness. He didn't understand what was going on. I mean, how many times had Judas come and kissed Jesus before? how many times that he had embraced him he saw jesus walk to him he saw jesus call him friend there was nothing unusual about that however when the jewish officers and the leaders and the soldiers and the lanterns and the torches and the weapons started walking to jesus all of a sudden the situation just kind of hits peter it hits him out of nowhere and he's really he's really just reacting out of fear and emotion And the fact that he hit the slave of the high priest and hit his ear shows not only how close they were, but it shows the confusion of the moment. I mean, there's no way in the world that Peter was trying to aim for his ear. He wasn't, first of all, that skilled of a swordsman. And no doubt, cutting off his ear wouldn't have helped very much. He just grabbed out his sword and he started swinging. And interestingly Luke adds for us in Luke 22:49 that before this happened actually all of the disciples of the disciples the ones who had a sword on them said shall we strike them with the sword shall we strike with the sword but apparently Peter never even waited for an answer he just pulled out a sword like Peter does and started swinging Again he's acting out of fear and he's acting out of confusion And it's important for us to realize that there's a reason that this is happening. There's one reason. What did Jesus just tell them when they were in the garden earlier? He said, Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Keep watching that you will not enter into temptation, for the Spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. And so Peter didn't do that. And so he's totally unprepared for this situation, he's not understanding it correctly. And nor is he emotionally or spiritually prepared to respond rightly when it comes upon him. He just acts out of emotion. He acts out of confusion. No doubt it is sincerity. He did love Christ. He did want to defend him. He was willing to lay down his life for him. But it really displays how superficial his understanding was at this point. In fact, Calvin Brought out in in a helpful way. This he says. He not only endeavors to overturn a heavenly decree, speaking of Peter, but also to obstruct the path of the redemption of mankind. Can you imagine that? What if he would have stopped them? Of course, this is God's plan. He wasn't going to. But what if he would have? He didn't realize that this was the plan of God. Jesus had told them that repeatedly. He had told them that he was going to die. He told them that he was going to be given over. He told them to watch and pray. But Peter just ignored all of that with the other disciples. And so when it came, they were totally unprepared, unthinking about what they were doing. And Christians do this. We do this. Knee-jerk reactions to situations rather than thoughtful and reasonable responses It happens when we embark on endeavors that come from a weak view of God. I think one thing that came to my mind as I was just thinking about that, in terms of how that kind of works out in our own world, that same kind of error. I was thinking, if we don't have a right view of God's sovereignty, if we don't have a right view of understanding God's purpose and plan then we are going to react like this and we're also going to approach ministry and the gospel and the work of God in an inadequate way. One would be, we're going to start thinking it depends more on us and we're going to be argumentative in our evangelism. Or we're going to design services that uh, devalue or, or diminish the hard things of the gospel that lead to a true understanding of grace. And we're going to go about it all wrong. Because we're not thinking rightly about God. This is a different situation. But that's what's going on with Peter here. He's not thinking rightly about God. His spirit, his his soul isn't prepared. And so he acts foolishly. And this stands in a striking contrast with Jesus. Our perfect model. He was prepared. He did watch. He did pray. He did know what God was doing. He was submitted to the plan of the Father. And again, I'd suggest that if we're not... Maturing, and we're not faithful and we're not consistent in our spiritual walk then we're going to end up making foolish decisions in life just like Peter hears when, when something comes crashing upon us whether it be a trial whether it be some cost to pay for our testimony of faith and our heart is going to be unprepared we're not going to be ready for it and we're going to respond foolishly we need to daily walk and understand and be sure that we're growing near to the Lord that we're watching and praying and understand who, understanding who God is rightly to respond rightly. But notice Jesus' kindness even in this. He graciously corrects Peter's thinking. Graciously corrects it. Well, first of all, I should mention that Luke alone records for us, because he's a physician, that after all of this happened that Jesus actually touched the ear of the slave Malchus and he healed it. This was a creative miracle by the one who spoke all things into existence, the one from whom all things came. He simply touched his ear and he brought it back. If you're familiar with Chronicles of Narnia, I was thinking at the end of Prince Caspian where Reaper Cheap's tail, remember, no tail, and he just creates for him a new tail. It's kind of a picture here of what Christ did with this slave's ear. He reached over, he touched, and he replaced his ear, and it diffused the situation, no doubt, and showed that his intentions were not violent, but it also displays his complete control over the situation. And in correcting Peter's thinking then, he gives three points that we'll notice here. Three significant points. Look at what he says in verse 52b. Or verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. The first thing he corrects is this. is He says, Peter, and he says to us, by his example... Violence will only produce more violence and it will not advance the kingdom of God. Violence will only produce more violence, it will not advance the kingdom of God. He wasn't thinking rightly about God's kingdom purposes in this age. The fact is that God's kingdom does include a physical kingdom, it does include a geography, it includes a people, it includes structures, it includes Christ on earth reigning over his people. But that will not come about until the time when Christ returns in his glory. What he was talking about in Matthew 25. When he comes, the king, and sits on his glorious throne and gathers the nations before them to judge them. That's when it will come, but not before then. And that's something that God will bring about, not his servants, by taking up the sword. The kingdom will come. It will be physical. But now is not it. Now is not the time. And that's something that God is going to do. God is going to do. We're not to do that for him. This is what he says in John eighteen thirty six, He's before Pilate. Remember, Pilate, just listen, who was questioning him about his kingdom, and Jesus answered in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. It's not of this world. It's not of this time. If it were, he'd say, hey, Peter, grab your sword and go fight. But in fact, it wasn't. And so he tells him, Peter, put your sword away. Put your sword away. God will establish his kingdom. God will punish his enemies. That's God's uh, priority. It's not ours. It's not ours. Ours is to love our enemies. Submit to our true king. Submit to the government as long as it doesn't cause sin. Lay down our lives for the gospel and the salvation of his people. Now, let me he just want to mention here that this statement is not addressing things like law enforcement, Christians and military, and so on and so forth. He's not addressing self-defense and all of those kind of questions. He's addressing the nature of the gospel and God's kingdom work in this age. That's what he's addressing. The government does bear the sword and it doesn't bear the sword for nothing. God works through the authority of government. That's not the question he's addressing here. He's addressing how we conceive of the kingdom of God. And how we conceive of God's work in that kingdom. I want to make a footnote here. He says over in Luke chapter 22 actually where he tells his disciples to buy a sword. He tells them to buy a sword. Is that a contradiction? Of course not. It makes clear all the way through the Gospels and Luke in his statement here. When he says by a sword, he's simply saying there is saying, look, the Gospel is going to bring conflict in this world. It's going to destroy peace. Be ready for the conflict that's going to come. The sword there is metaphorical of the danger of the conflict that will come because of the Gospel. But here he tells them that's not how it's going to advance. Why? Because the kingdom is first spiritual. It's first spiritual. It has a physical element to it but it is first a spiritual kingdom. Luke 17, 21, he says this, the kingdom of God is in your midst. He began the very announcement of the kingdom with what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, have faith in Jesus. That's how you enter into the kingdom. The announcement of God's work is the announcement first of entrance into the kingdom. Yes, through the new birth of the spirit shown in the repentance and faith of those in whom God works it's a spiritual advancement the heart of the kingdom now is the heart of redemption it's the message of redemption it's the message of salvation in christ it's not the sword it's not the destruction of god's enemies it's not praying in precatory psalms against all of those who reject the gospel it is a message of the gospel of grace listen to paul's words he says in acts 20 he testified solemnly of the gospel, listen, of the grace of God. And it was that message of the gospel, of the grace of God, that was the heart of his preaching the kingdom, he says in verse 25. He was preaching the kingdom, and what was he doing? He was preaching salvation in Christ, primarily. Salvation. And so it means this, that the advancement of the kingdom, then, is the advancement of the gospel, How do we fight in the kingdom of God? How do we fight as Christians? How do we take up arms as Christians? We do so, what forms in your mind? How do we do that? We do that with the truth. We do that with the truth of the gospel. We do that with the truth of the gospel. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 or 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says this, For we walk in the flesh, but we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. How, if you are a Christian, do you fight in the kingdom? You fight by being faithful to the truth, by knowing the truth. By tearing down strongholds and those things that are raised up against the knowledge of God. And in doing so, you are prepared to suffer. You're prepared to suffer. You're prepared to suffer for the name of Christ. You're prepared to be imprisoned. You're prepared to be killed. Because that's how the kingdom of God advances right now. That's how the kingdom of God advances in this age. And that is why it is wrong for Christians and for the church to place undue hope in time and energy and finances in fighting for righteousness by earthly means, alone. Such as political activism or specific causes rather than for the gospel. The gospel and our desire for righteousness brings us into contact with certain causes for righteousness for sure. To stand up for things that are right. To support things that are right. No doubt. Pro-life and those things have their value. And they have their place within the Christian's activities. But to make that the sole focal point of the church is wrong. It's wrong. The religious right that is now disintegrated. Was destined to failure at the the beginning. Why? Because it supplanted their hope in the gospel. For hope in political reformation. As if righteousness was something that was legislated before it was a reality in the heart of the people. That's not how God is accomplishing his work now. And if that is the greater burden of the church's heart, then we're in the same error that he's rebuking Peter for here. Saying you don't understand the kingdom. You don't understand what God is doing. It is first the spiritual work that God is doing now. And we need to hear this, don't we, in light of our current situation. Don't we need to hear this in light of looking at our political candidates and all the discussion that's going on and all the anxiety and the worry that is in the heart of so many Christians? And it's certainly wrong if you hear anybody present who our next ruler is as if that's going to stop the work of God, right? He will build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Paul says, I'm imprisoned, but the word of God is not imprisoned and never will it be. Never could it be. That Whatever the political government is, whatever government that God has designed and ordained for you and me to live under has nothing to do with the mission of the church, has nothing to do with the advancement of God's kingdom in this world, nothing, not at all, zero. It doesn't matter if you're under a communist government, our government, or any other government, the gospel and the mission of the church is the same. That's why even in places where there's much oppression against the truth, the gospel is flourishing, the church is flourishing. It's exactly the opposite of Islam. It's exactly the opposite of Islam. And those who think that somehow coercion physically will bring about spiritual purposes. It's exactly the opposite of the crusades that were totally an act of sin and had very had nothing to do actually. With the advancement of the kingdom of God. It's simply wrong. Again let me just. Calvin was helpful in this. He says. While all things are mingled in confusion. And while the devil by spreading darkness abroad. Appears to overturn the whole order of the world. Let us know that the providence of God. Shines above in heaven. To bring at length to order. What is confused. And listen to this as Christians. And let us therefore learn to raise the eyes of faith to that calm sky. Isn't that a beautiful way to put it? Let us learn to raise the eyes of faith to that calm sky where everything is in the sovereign hand and control of God who will fulfill his purposes on this earth in his own timing and in his own way. But for us right now, what has he called us to? To suffer for that gospel. Not to take up arms. Not to be involved in earthly means of fighting and political activism, whatever. But it is to be faithful to the gospel. Ultimately, believers will suffer at the hands of government. That's going to happen. It happens over much of the world. It's going to likely happen here if God ordains that. They can kill the body, however, but they are unable to kill the soul. And it is for this reason that those in the kingdom of Christ are called To suffer. They're called to suffer. And look, Jesus demonstrates that perfectly. Look at what he says. In Matthew 26. He says this. Look at verse 53. Or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? Staggering statement. Staggering. Consider this. Jesus' command to Peter to put his sword away, and here's the key word, is because God is sovereign. Because God is in absolute control. He says, Peter, put your sword away. Put your sword away. God could do it that way, but that's not his purpose now. Legion is, of course, Consists of about 6,000 soldiers. This is a massive amount of angels. I think about 82,000 right around there. One angel destroyed 185,000 Assyrians in 2 Kings 19. Can you imagine what 82,000 would do? Certainly didn't need that many. His point here was simply to say, Look, there's, un, there's untold power at my disposal. Put your sword away. I don't need your puny sword, Peter. Your puny sword is not going to accomplish the work and the plan of God. So, why doesn't he do that? Because, because this is what God has ordained. He's not doing this out of lack of power. He's doing it in a display of the most ultimate power. Because God is sovereign. Now, you might ask yourself this. If Jesus just prayed in the garden for God to keep him from the cross... How now can he pray and say God would send him all of these angels? Is that a contradiction, does some want to say? Or do those ideas conflict? Well, of course not. How you answer that is simply. When Jesus was praying to the Father in the garden, he was never He was never not submitted perfectly and gladly and totally to the will of the Father. As we mentioned, he was simply feeling the weight of what that would cost him. In his humanity, he cringed at the idea of going to the cross. In his perfect holiness, he cringed at the idea of what that meant to be the sin bearer for the world. But he completely submitted to the Father. Here he's doing just the opposite. He's saying, of course I wouldn't ask God for that. I could, but of course I wouldn't. Because that's not the plan of God. Again, this is just another way that it perfectly demonstrates his absolute submission to the will of the Father. John 18, 11, The cup which the Father has given me to drink, shall I not drink it? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. This cup is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sin. I have to die is essentially what he's saying. Of course, of course, I'm going to go to the cross. But what it's for us to notice in this, and in his words, is this, that God is accomplishing his purpose through the suffering of his people. Only Jesus' death could, of course, be atoning. Only he was the spotless lamb of God. But his suffering here is the example for us all. His suffering in the midst of this kind of rejection of the gospel is the example for us all. How are we to face suffering? As Jesus faced suffering. Perfect trust and obedience in the plan of the Father. Listen to what he said earlier. You remember these words. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who have been persecuted. Paul says in 2 Timothy, All who desire to live godly in this age, Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, if they're doing this to me, if they're mounting up against me, then they're going to do it to you. What are they going to do to you? Well, the same that they did to me because you bear my name. He says, all these things in John 16, they will do for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. Paul said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Let me ask you this question. Do you want to be a Christian? And do you want to follow Christ? Well, this is what it looks like. And this is only by the grace of God, of course. This is only by the the empowering, indwelling spirit that enables us to do this. But it is to say this, that when he says, Repentance, you exchange your life for his This is what it could cost. Of course, in some ways, it might be easier for some to say, Yeah, I'd take a bullet for Jesus and I'd stand up with a sword. But it actually goes much deeper than that, of course. Would we speak for him when there's a cost to pay? When we think we're going to look foolish? We could lose our job or anything else. Lose a promotion. But at the very least, there is a price to pay for following him. And here it is suffering at the hand of wicked men. But I'll tell you, it is in that moment of obedience where we have a choice to make that the reality of spiritual life is displayed. It's in that moment. What our heart most divide desires, what our affections are most set on will be displayed when there is a cost to pay for obedience to Christ. It's easy when there's no cost, but it's not the truest display. And so, again, the question is always before us, is this, Is this the obedience that we want, that our heart longs for? Yes, we fail. Yes, we confess our sin. But is this what you want? When you think of what it means to be a Christian, is it this kind of obedience that your heart desires to offer to him as worship? Your life is a living sacrifice. That's what it should be. That's the call to come and die. Do you not think I couldn't ask my father and he'd put at my disposal 12 legions of angels? I could. But then he says in verse 54, but how would the scriptures then be fulfilled? How will it be fulfilled? So many examples of this. I want to just give a couple before I briefly mention the last point. Well, we we know the example of Peter and the apostles in Acts 5 and others where... They, were, they went away rejoicing because they were able to suffer for Christ. And even in the midst of the context of their receiving the suffering, they praised God who was the creator of the heaven and earth. They praised God in chapter 4 for the one who was in control and working out his plan when all the might of the world was against Jesus and they crucified him and they, he gave himself over. But I want to look particularly just at Peter's own lesson because he's really the, the center here for us, the one who... Jesus is addressing, though he's talking to all of them. When he says you, it's actually plural. He's talking to all of them. He's addressing Peter, but addressing all of them, really. And he says this in 1 Peter. What lessons did Peter learn? Peter learned this as he's writing to a persecuted church. And he says, what kind of encouragement would you give them who are suffering at the hands of a government, of a situation that is against the name of Christ? And he says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused his great, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A hope that is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A hope that has an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled and will not fade away. A hope that knows it's protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed. In other words, we have a certain hope and it's not in this world. It's not in this world. It is in Christ, and the One is coming. It is a joy in our salvation. So, with this hope, how are we to respond? He says in chapter thir- uh, chapter two, verse thirteen: Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evil doers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. What he doesn't say is start a revolution. What he doesn't say is rebel. He says, submit and trust God. You say, well, that's too much. Well, he says, look at the example of Jesus after he already tells them. If you're a servant, you do the same thing. And then he says, he looks at Jesus and he says, he left for us an example to follow in his step. While being reviled, in verse 23, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And for him it was an atoning suffering. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin, live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. And then he tells them again over in chapter 4, verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now we need to hear that because we live in America. And we act as if some strange thing in the universe were happening because Christ is now no longer a means of getting respect, but dishonor in our culture. Of being called foolish and stupid and a hater. And we're surprised sometimes. And Peter's word is saying, don't be surprised. Why are you surprised? Be surprised that you've had so long without that happening. Because of God's mercy and kindness. Don't be surprised. If some strange thing are happening to you. But listen to this. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. Keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory. You may rejoice with exaltation. He says at the end of the chapter. Therefore those who suffer according to the will of God. Shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator. In doing what is right. Jesus is our model. So what do they do? They come with their swords. They come with all that. And he says look. Look. God's in control. He's in absolute control. Submit. Submit. That's not how God's going to advance His kingdom. Right now, God's people are going to suffer. When He returns, they will be exalted in glory with Christ. Understand the nature of the kingdom. What is our job? It is to be faithful to the gospel. And then, lastly, and I'll just mention it and we'll pray He says this. They came in the crowds. He says, if you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you were to robber, every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. All this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. And then all the disciples left and fled him. And I'll just mention the last point. It is the mistreatment, that the wicked act in violence and hypocrisy. They knew that wasn't the nature of his ministry. They knew that. It was total hypocrisy and wickedness for them to come with swords and all of that as if against a robber. And we see this all the time. Christians called haters. Christians who endure acts of violence and are called the wicked ones. While those who are committing the acts of violence are counted as being right. Such as the hatred against Christians. And such as it is here. It's totally unreasonable. It doesn't make any sense. But that's the nature of it. That's the nature of it. It makes sense because, as Jesus said in Luke 22, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. But we, beloved, are to trust our sovereign God. Trust our sovereign God. And Him who was led to the slaughter as an example for us is also the one who will never leave us in our own suffering that He may call us to. We must be about the King's business, which is faithfulness to the gospel. That is our goal as a church. That is our goal as Christians. And then as we can say with Paul, and we'll do this and pray, he says at the end of his life, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me, just like with the Lord. But it may not be counted against them, but guess what? The Lord stood with me and strengthened me, and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray, and this will be our closing benediction, the prayer. Father, thank you for this, your word. Help us to help us to grasp the reality that we live in in a, in a fallen world, and help us to grasp the glory of our redemption in Christ and the nature of the kingdom. and keep us faithful to the end. Keep our priorities as your priorities. Keep our loves and our affections as your loves and affections. Keep us faithful, Lord, because we know. I know, and all of us know here who know you, that it's not in our own strength that we can do that. It's not by our own power. It's not by our own determination of will. But it is by your Spirit in us. It is as we rely on you day by day, as we learn, as we continue to learn and grow in our understanding of your greatness and glory, that you will strengthen us in whatever you call us to do. Maybe it'll be physical suffering. Maybe it'll be the persecution of a government. Maybe it'll be many other things, but help us. Help us in that moment to obey you, to trust you, and therefore demonstrate our love for you and your worthiness to be loved and followed. We do pray these things in the matchless name of him who died and rose again for sinners. In the name of Jesus, amen.